Riley Sue and I am so excited to be joining you guys for another week of Women's History Month and another episode of the pod. Last week we covered the horrifyingly true history of the Salem witch trials and the discussion was great and I definitely learned a whole lot of new information from all of the research that went into that episode. My spouse and I have been joking about witch cakes and some of the other things that we covered last week. Uh, But this week, we're going to keep in form with Women's History Month, and we're going to cover the history of menstrual products. Now, before you humans who don't menstruate tune out and think that this episode isn't for you, listen up. I'm, I'm speaking directly to you. I have seen far too many TikToks and read far too many Reddit posts where there are young men and young people in general that just possess the most convoluted and backwards ideas about menstruation and female reproductive anatomy so it it literally feels like I'm living in an episode of punk or something like where's Ashton he could come out at any moment but there this this should not be people living in the 21st century like who are thinking this way but in reality people are that fucking dumb and so part of being an adult human who wishes to be intimate with other adult humans is to understand the facts and functions of reproductive and sexual anatomy which is why today we are going to be spending the next half hour or so going through the history of not only menstrual products, but also some cultural attitudes and religious practices towards a woman's period throughout time and history. We've got more than 4,000 years of information to go over today, so let's just go ahead and get into it. All right, so to go ahead and make sure we're all on the same page here, let's have a quick lesson on the birds and the bees, know-it-all style. Menstruation, or woman's period, is the process where she sheds blood and tissue from her uterus through her vagina, typically taking place once a month beginning in puberty during early adolescence on average around 12 years old, and then carrying on until later in life when medical intervention or menopause occurs. Menstruation occurs in a cycle, roughly every 28 days or so, with some women having longer or shorter cycles. But this is why occasionally it's called a moon time, and for millennia it has been related to the 29 and a half day orbit of the moon around the earth. Menstrual cycles are necessary for fertility and pregnancy, and are therefore an essential part of sustaining the human race. Birth-giving humans are equipped with two ovaries, where inside of each one there's a whole bunch of tiny human eggs, too small to see with the naked eye. Throughout a menstrual cycle, hormones in the body make an egg in the ovary mature, and once it's mature, it's ready to be fertilized by a sperm cell, so it makes the transition from the ovaries, through the fallopian tube, and into the uterus. The same hormones that mature the egg also thicken the lining of the uterus, and if the egg that has been released is fertilized, the lining of the uterus has become this velvety, cushy kind of surface that's perfectly suited for the egg to attach to and provides nutrients for a fetus throughout pregnancy. If the egg is not fertilized, the body doesn't need the thick lining that it's created, and it breaks it down. Then the blood, nutrients, and tissue are dispelled out of the body through the vagina. Bada bing, bada boom. That's a period. The cycle then starts again, and its beginning is marked with the start of one's period. Too many medical words and too long-winded? Well, then let me provide you with the silly way that my brain rationalized it when I was young. Picture this. Inside of your body, there are a variety of small rooms and smaller workers. Up on one of the higher floors, there's a mailroom of sorts, and they prepare a package of one very special egg once a month. They work diligently to ensure that the egg is ready and prepared for the great possibilities that await it, and then they send their precious egg on this adventure. The mailroom is the ovary, and the egg is, well, the egg. I, I was young when I came up with this analogy, okay? Don't, don't give me shit for it. While the male folks are working on their package, another group of workers is on a lower floor, setting up all the trimmings of a perfect party. 
They clean the floors. They lay out cushy blankets. They set the right mood with candles from Bath and Body Works. You get the picture. This is your uterus. Think 1970s conversation pit, but it's your uterus. It's a lounge of sorts, I guess. The lounge workers make everything perfect, and they plan the most exuberant party that you could ever imagine. And then finally, one day, their package arrives with the precious egg. The workers in the lounge dote over the egg and keep it safe in the velvet and tasseled throw pillows, but they weren't waiting for the egg. The party isn't for the egg, and after a few days pass and that sperm-thick mystery guest doesn't show up, the lounge workers decide to throw the baby out with the bathwater. They tear down all the tapestries. They shred all of the throw pillows. They're pissed. They planned this whole event and no one showed. They throw all the stuff out and they make a whole racket in the process. This is the process of menstruation and cramping that comes along with it. Just picture a whole bunch of really pissed off party planners ripping down a bunch of bunting and throwing champagne flutes into a dumpster. Violent and full of rage. The beauty of womanhood. The word menstruation comes from the Latin word menses, meaning month, which is derived from the Greek word for moon, many. The use of the word period in relation to menstruation was not super common until around 1829, and it's likely that it was originally short for period of menstruation. Connections between the 28-day menstrual cycle and the orbit of the moon are just going to keep coming, so all throughout mythology, culture, and medicine, we're going to see the moon and its phases tied to menstruation. All right, so now that we have all of that stuff established, let's go ahead and take a brief commercial break before we jump back into the episode. Okay, welcome back. So if you're a person who menstruates, or even if you're a person who doesn't, it's likely that you've probably at some point been curious about how people throughout history have dealt with their periods. And we're gonna dig into exactly that, taking it way back and beginning with prehistoric times. One of the many, many things that separate the experience of women in the Stone Age from women now is, of course, their health. Life expectancy was around 40 years old in the Stone Age, and our ancestors had less body fat than we have today. Women had an average of six children, breastfeeding for around two to four years each time. And since you don't have a period whenever you've got a bun in the oven or you're breastfeeding, Stone Age women had lighter bleeding than most women now experience, and they had less bleeding. They would experience an average of around 50 periods over their lifetime, and women today can expect around 450 periods throughout their lives. It's hard to say exactly what it was that women in the Stone Age used to keep up with their needs whilst they were bleeding. Animal skins, grasses, moss, leaves are all likely, but whatever it was, it had to be something that they could freely move around in. They needed to be able to chase after kids, climb under trees and crawl under bushes to gather fruit and herbs, walk long distances carrying loads of items or children. These are women and people that figured out sturdy and dependable ways to carry their babies while they worked. So let's not doubt their abilities to deal with something as unexceptional as bleeding a little while every now and then. Because there are phases of the moon and there are different phases of one's menstrual cycle, many ancient cultures related the two, and the moon goddesses were also often the goddesses of fertility, pregnancy, or femininity. Greek goddess Selene, Roman goddess Luna, Mayong Wall of Korean myth, Abuk of the Dinka in South Sudan, Hawaiian Lona, Incan goddess Mamakia, Aztec Metzili, and Mayan goddess Ishel are just a few. I'm not going to cover all of these explicitly, but I just think that this list shows how widespread and common the belief of menstruation and association with the moon was, and I guess ultimately is. Many native cultures believed that menstruation was something to be honored, and though of course beliefs and traditions vary sometimes greatly from tribe to tribe, menstruating women were for the most part given deep respect. I mean, it's quite a wonder that women can bleed for days on end and not be dying or in need of intense medical attention. Some groups thought that having a period was a sign of holiness, purification of the soul, and spiritual power. Many women used moss or grass to help keep things from getting messy throughout the process. 
Women of the Ojibwe tribe in the northern Midwestern United States and the south of Canada traditionally secluded themselves in moon lodges during their periods. In a small wigwam, they would sleep separate from their husbands and children, refraining from sex, food preparation, and any ceremonies. They were careful to not step over young children and touch babies, men, or communal foods. Other women and relatives would help to make sure that the woman in the moon lodge was safe and fed, as well as help take care of her family in her absence. To some, this practice may feel like the woman is being ostracized or that menstruation is something to be ashamed of. But for Ojibwe women, their moon time is often reported as an experience of rest, regeneration, and recognition for their important roles in their communities as life givers and leaders. The Yurok tribe in Northern California believe that during menstruation, a woman is at the height of her power and thus her time should not be wasted on mundane tasks or social distractions, nor should her concentration be broken by concerns of the opposite sex. She isolates herself from all of these distractions for 10 days in a menstrual shelter or a room, and all her time should be dedicated to meditation on the nature of life. The Yurok also believe in a sacred moontime pond, where women in the past would go to bathe and perform sacred rituals. Firewood from this location would be brought back and used in the menstrual shelters in the village. Many girls would visit the moontime pond for their first period, and all of a household's fertile women were said to have menstruated at the same time, in accordance with the moon. If a woman fell out of sync with her sisters, she could get back into rhythm by sitting in the moonlight and talking to the moon and asking it to balance her. In ancient Egypt, menstrual blood was used as a remedy for sagging breasts, bellies, and thighs. There's no 100% solid evidence for what Egyptians used for cleanup or for maintenance of their periods, but there are some theories and a few things that can point us in the general direction. One text describes the different social statuses of jobs and points out things that would be negative, like being a laundry worker who has to wash the loincloth of a menstruating woman, which suggests the use of a belt with a pad or something similar. The story also implies that menstrual blood was impure and it was something that men should not touch, an idea that was also evidenced by the fact that menstrual blood was a woman's medicine, not a man's. In Egyptian mythology, the goddess Isis fashioned a talisman of protection in the form of a tampon to use while she was pregnant with her son Horus, and her brother-in-law Set was attempting to end her pregnancy, which caused her to have premature bleeding. These Isis knots and other types of disposable tampons were likely used by Egyptian women made from papyrus and other grasses, and then replaced by cotton as the Roman era began. In Jewish laws, as soon as a woman begins bleeding, she enters the state of Nidda and is not allowed to touch her husband until she has slept on white sheets for a week to prove that the bleeding has ended. Only when the sheets are verifiably unstained can she wash herself in the sacred mikvah bath and return to her marital bed. Many modern Jewish peoples do not observe these practices, but some more conservative and orthodox communities do. Islamic tradition also dictates that a woman must have conducted her postmenstrual rituals before she can make love to her husband. Also during her period, a Muslim woman is not allowed inside of a mosque and cannot pray or fast during Ramadan. Hippocratic texts that date back to Greece in the 5th and 4th centuries BCE state that women have flesh that is spongier than a man's, and because of this, she absorbs liquid from food and wine throughout the month that then has to be expelled from her body. If the body does not expel enough of this buildup, one could become ill, and the blood could rot and put pressure on more vital organs. There's no evidence that women in Greece used wool wrapped around wooden sticks as tampons, though you could find a whole mess of TikToks and other places on the internet that say differently. I have no idea why they think you'd want to stick a literal splinter up there, but maybe they think that ancient women have invincible and unfeeling yayas. I don't know. Instead, it's more likely that if your family could afford it, you would have just stayed home while you were menstruating, and if they couldn't, you would have just had to deal and keep going with your life. There's a well-known book by Anita Diamant called The Red Tent that discusses the idea of a red menstrual tent used by women in biblical times to commune and indulge during their periods. While there is no historic evidence to back up Diamant's ideas of this tent, it's a wonderful story of what life could have been like had menstrual tents existed in Abrahamic cultures as they do in others. The Red Tent has actually been adapted into a miniseries and is available on Amazon Prime. 
Uh, I've only seen the first episode because when I say miniseries, I mean it's more like a three-hour movie that they split into two episodes, literally one and a half hours each. But I've read The Red Tent like four times, so I'm enjoying the show. I highly recommend it, and I think that you should read The Red Tent, and I also think that my opinion says something, so check it out. By the Middle Ages, and especially in medieval Europe, the humoral theory ran the show when it came to medicine, and menstruation was no exception to that. The four major humors of the body were phlegm, yellow bile, black bile, and blood. If you had too much of one of the humors, it would lead to disease. Simple stuff. So they thought that menstruation, the release of excess blood on a monthly basis, was a sign of illness, and thus everyone who had a period must be in some form or fashion diseased. Menstrual blood was thought to kill crops and dull mirrors, and women who were actively going through menses could make people sick. There's another belief at this time that sex is what helps to keep the vaginal canal open and allows blood to flow freely. So nuns and widows who have no plumber maintaining their pipes, so to speak, could expect to bleed from their asses or even cough up blood instead of have a period. Many women used cloth rags as a sort of DIY pad at this time, and this is where the term on the rag could originate from. Another common euphemism for menstrual bleeding at this time was flowers, a horticultural analogy of how flowers come before fruit. For the most part during the Middle Ages, women were freeballing under all those petticoats and skirts. With the breeze on their lips and not a panty in sight, it's likely that they either free bled directly onto their chemise, which was the layer of dressing that was closest to their skin and the most regularly washed, or that they fashioned belts to attach pads or rags to. We do know that Queen Elizabeth I of England had three black silk girdles to help keep her sanitary rags in place, and she only took a bath once a month, probably after her period, quote, whether she needed it or not. I'm going to say that after a month, you are going to need it, Liz, but that's just my opinion. In medieval Europe, the largest shift we've seen in comparison to previous periods we've discussed, <laughs> periods, is that shame starts to be added to the conversation. Ideas that women are going through menses that would make people sick, that they were sick themselves, that they could make beehives empty and swords rust, and that a single drop of menstrual blood could burn someone's skin like acid made menses something that was meant to be dealt with quickly and quietly. Loads of effort began going into the process of ensuring that no one knows you may or may not be on the rag. Women carried bundles of sweet-smelling herbs around their necks and waists, hoping that it would curb any odors, and remedies like powdered toad were peddled to slow a heavy flow. By Tudor times, a woman's period was thought to be a punishment passed down by God for Eve's eternal sin of eating the apple in the Garden of Eden, something that was also told to me as a young Catholic girl. The church began dictating that taking any form of painkiller to relieve discomfort or menstrual cramps was not allowed, as women needed to suffer the pain and bear this retribution. Women were also encouraged to refrain from taking communion during their periods. Homemade pads reigned supreme during this time and were made of things like cotton fibers and scraps, oil silk, which was really easy to wash, wool wadding, wood, and linen. But don't worry, help is on the way for the ladies of the world. The late 19th century is when things really start to switch up and the wild idea of options, of choice, is available to women. One of these ideas was sea sponges, thought to have also been used by the Greeks and other Mediterranean women. The sponges were encased in a net that was then closed with a string, which helped with easy removal. Sponges were also easier to keep clean and therefore helped with the piles of smelly rags that had been used for the last few centuries. With the invention and craze for rubber in the 1850s, there also came the invention of the sanitary apron. These were just strips of rubber that were put between the legs and affixed on a belt, just like the sanitary napkin. And while they helped prevent staining, they were stuffy and trapped bacteria that led to rashes and infections. The sanitary belt was invented in the late 1800s and became the popular choice for women for the next 100 years. These belts were simple. They were a waistband that either had clasps or a spot to affix safety pins to hold a pad or sanitary napkin. 
The pads were washable, and with growing concerns for sanitation and infection amongst doctors, the necessity of changing the dressing for your period was forced into the forefront of concerns over menstruation. The first disposable sanitary napkin to hit the market came in 1896 when Johnson & Johnson created their version called Lister's Towel, Sanitary Towels for Ladies, which wasn't a very catchy name, and the advertising for it was perceived as inappropriate. Women weren't interested in going into a shop and asking for a product that had to do with their periods. The product failed, and though sanitary pads would remain available, they were expensive, and most women maintained their homemade washable versions. And although the sanitary belt meant that women wouldn't have to bleed directly under their skirts or use anything internally, it was still finicky and bulky and would often slip around the person wearing it when they went about their daily activities. I read a book on gynecology called Disorders of Menstruation that was published in 1888, and some of the things that were in there were just insane. First, if a woman was experiencing amenorrhea, or the lack of periods, and appeared to be doing everything that she needed to do to have a well-maintained level of activity, a good diet, and seemed to be developing normally, even if she had never menstruated before, electric therapy would be applied to her uterus and her ovaries from the outside of her abdomen. The author also noted that this wasn't a very successful practice, and it was just better to wait and see if the period came on its own. You think? Some other things that he suggested yeah, he's a he, were that women who were having a heavy flow take a tincture that included arsenic, strychnine, hydrochloric acid, and a sufficient quantity of water. Yeah, because that's going to keep all the rest of that in line. Another firsthand account that I read from this time were letters written by a woman named Laura who lived in Missouri in 1894. In her letters to her husband who is away, she describes not only how her life with their children and their farm is carrying on, but also her periods and the treatment that she receives from her doctors and other local men. She discusses her cramps and the regularity of her cycles, and in one instance, she begins menstruating while her daughter is sick, and then Laura needs to ride into town to get some medicine. She says that she rode her horse as quickly as she could, and she was only gone for two hours, but that something was thrown off inside of her, and soon she had trouble standing, so she had to visit the doctor herself. The doctor told her that she had jostled herself too much in the saddle, and it would require two weeks of being perfectly still and quiet for her to be all right again. Another time, she describes to her husband riding home from town on her horse when a man called to her from behind. Laura experienced catcalling on horseback in the 1800s, and I experienced it while riding lime scooters. Wow, humanity just fucking sucks. <laughs> but she looked around and she saw someone that she knew, John Sherman, so she rode with him for a moment, chatting as they went. When it came Laura's turn to go home, she stopped at her road and told John to have a good night. But he stopped her and said, You have no man. I have no woman. Would you care if I came over to your house every once in a while? Uh, the fuck I do, John? Laura says that she was so mad she could hardly speak and told John if he ever showed up at her farm, he would be sorry for it. And with that, she writes that she hit her horse hard on the ass and rode home as hard as she could hope. Surgical dressings that were used during World War I helped to begin the boom of menstruation innovation. Oh my god, that's so fun to say. Why haven't I been saying that the whole time? <laughs> I'm so disappointed. Anyway. French nurses were the first to recognize the absorbent power of cellulocotton bandages, stuffing them down their britches as both a convenient and effective solution to their periods while they were working. Sphagnacans, yes, I said that right, sphagnacans were developed from sphagnum moss, a moss that can absorb more than 20 times its dry weight and has the antibacterial properties. We learned all about sphagnum moss in the Bog Bodies episode, so we also know that sphagnum moss is great at making mummies. Sphagnacans came in packaging that featured a woman wearing an American Red Cross nurse's cap and was called the Sphagnum Moss Girl, and although it had great claims for absorbency and antibacterial action, it wasn't a great success in the market. Cellulocotton found out that their bandages were being used for menstrual care and decided to market the dressings as disposable pads under the name Kotex. 
which is the name the entire company would eventually change to and the name that lots of people my grandma's age call all tampons, regardless of their actual brand. Kotex wasn't an immediate success, though, because women were still hesitant about the idea of walking into a pharmacy and purchasing something that was so obviously going to be going near their fine china. But brands quickly found a way around this. Packaged in plain brown paper and available on a table in the pharmacy, a woman could just come into the store and select what she needed, leave some money in a jar or in a box, and then walk out with her items. Marketed to the dainty woman, there was no need to have the packaging displayed or talk to anyone in the process. Kotex truly found their success, though, when they began to advertise in catalogs and became available for purchase through the mail to avoid embarrassment. Though women still used sponges and other homemade tampons, the late 1920s and early 1930s saw several patents for tampons come through. The first tampons were much like the pads on the market at the time and were wrapped in gauze with no applicator and no string. The design that's most often cited as the first successful tampon came from a patent filed in 1931 by Dr. E.C. Haas. Haas came up with the idea for the tampon and the applicator after learning that a friend had been using a menstrual sponge rather than the bulky pads and belts of the period, and he thought that there must have been a better solution. This design was pretty innovative and really helped tampons to get a better establishment in the market because many women were uncomfortable with the idea of manually inserting a tampon. You know, you don't want to get bitten by your own puss. That'd be a real awkward visit to the emergency room. Dr. Haas wasn't great at marketing his product, though, so he sold the patent to a German immigrant named Gertrude Tendrick, who started making the tampons by hand with a sewing machine and air compressor. Tendrick's company flourished, and this mother of menstruation created a megalith of menstrual health. This original idea for the tampon is where Tampax stemmed from. Tampon is from the French word tampion, which means stopper, and the applicator was a vaginal pack. Tampon plus vaginal pack equals Tampax. The math checks out. Today, Tampax accounts for about half of all tampon sales in the world. Tampons weren't originally marketed the way that we see them now. All those fun, excitable women in white clothes dancing to an upbeat pop track. Rather, they were marketed to married women because using one may be seen as tarnishing to a woman's sexual value or to her virginity. I am of the personal belief that virginity is a myth, so I'm glad I didn't live around this time because I would have raised a whole lot of hell. It was actually up until World War II that women were more likely to use homemade tampons rather than commercial. The women who did use tampons were also more likely to have active lifestyles, being dancers, actresses, models, athletes, or sex workers. With the beginning of the war, tampon ads began echoing the nationalistic tones of other media at the time. This change in advertising was paired with a mass education program by Tampax that taught women both how to use tampons and about the lifestyle benefits of losing the old-fashioned pads and belts. By the end of the Second World War, pads were still more popular than tampons, but sales on the little cotton rockets had increased by 500% between 1937 and 1943. One study over tampons and pads and their effectiveness as menstrual guards in 1945 went the opposite direction that you'd probably expect and favored the use of tampons stating that pads caused, quote, the sexual stimulation of the woman by the friction of the pad against the vulva, end quote. Sounds hot. <laughs> Later in 1946, the Cellular Cotton Company commissioned an animated short film from the Walt Disney Company to educate young girls in schools on their bodies and what to expect during menstruation. This short film is believed to be the first film to mention the word vagina and was inducted into the American National Film Registry in 2015. The first modern menstrual cup was invented in 1937, made from latex rubber and offered one of the most discreet options at the time. Menstrual cups allowed for a high level of freedom with blood being collected throughout the day. The cups were then emptied, rinsed, and cleaned, and then reinserted for further use. Menstrual cups fell out of use with the shortage of latex rubber during World War II and made a brief comeback during the late 1960s, but never really took off. It wasn't until the early 1970s, though, that the next true breakthrough came to menstrual health. 
The beltless feminine napkin by Stay Free hit the market and the world truly changed in the end of 1969. With an adhesive strip placed along the bottom of the pad, it could easily be affixed to a woman's underwear and then removed when it was done being used. Quickly, women loved this product, and by the 80s, the use of belted sanitary napkins was almost entirely gone. It was actually also illegal to promote or advertise menstrual products on television and radio until the 1970s. This all changed, though, in 1972 when the ban was lifted. Advertisements for pads and tampons hit televisions and everyone was trying to pitch what made their product the best, but none of them ever so much as muttered the word period. It wasn't until a 1985 Tampax ad that a pre-friends Courtney Cox became the first person to say the word period on television. She edges you on it for a majority of the ad, saying things like that time, but right at the end, right before she runs out of time, she gives it to you, saying, quote, Tampax can actually change the way you feel about your period. Yes, Courtney! Hold your applause, though, because as much as Courtney changed the game in on-air advertising, nothing really changed in the bigger picture. By the 1990s, the tampon industry was struggling because of new information linking tampons and toxic shock syndrome. A tampon released by Procter & Gamble called the Rely was marketed as highly absorbent, but was quickly discontinued due to high rates of toxic shock syndrome. This led people to realize just how little they knew about what they were putting inside of their bodies. Secrecy and discretion about our periods has persisted well into the 21st century. From compact applicators and quiet packaging to scented pads and feminine washes, women will still go to absurd lengths to make sure that the association of their vaginas and their personalities never happens. Women now have a wide variety of options available. Disposable pads are thinner and more comfortable. Tampons come in a variety of sizes and styles that are generally safer to use and are more user-friendly. Menstrual cups have even made a comeback, with silicone-based designs all over the market. Other more traditional products have also come back, with issues like plastic and excess waste at the front of our modern minds. Creating your own cloth pads has been having a resurgence since about the early 1990s, when it was seen by the Riot Girl movement as a powerful political stance. Other more modern options include absorbent period underwear, though some studies have shown that these can cause health issues. I do want to put that out there. There's also access to modern birth control, like the pill or IUDs, which can cause periods to stop for some women. And there are even many modern women who don't menstruate at all because of one of these things that I've listed or other medical interventions or just something else that is not my business. And while it's certainly safe to say that we've come a long way, almost as long as the journey from ovary to uterus, there's still a lot of ground to be covered for women and their rights over their periods in the present day. The pink tax, or price inflation on necessary goods for menstruation, can add around $188,000 of extra cost to a woman's life in the United States. And in a world where women earn 82 cents for every dollar a man is paid, this is a substantial markup. And the impact of this cost increase is further evidenced by the fact that women are more likely to feel stressed about their finances than men are. And as of this episode in March of 2023, there have been no federal laws passed against the pink tax and only a few states have legislation over the matter. In Ethiopia, period poverty is still a giant issue. Menstruation is considered highly taboo and therefore it's hardly discussed and menstrual education in schools is extremely uncommon. Only one in four girls know about menstruation before they start their first period. Around 75% of women and girls in Ethiopia do not have access to menstrual products and around 25% cannot afford to use any sanitary products during their periods. Many girls miss school due to this lack of resources and are therefore less likely to complete their education. In Nepal, menstruating women and girls are still seen as unclean and are exiled to bare-boned menstrual huts during their periods. Women stay in the huts for five days, and girls who are having their first period stay in the hut for 14 days. Just like in Ethiopia, this causes many young girls to be frequently absent at school. In 2005, Nepal's Supreme Court banned the use of these menstrual huts, and in 2018, they assigned criminal penalties for using them. 
but they're still common and the ban is not enforced. Each year, around a dozen women and girls die in these huts due to freezing temperatures, smoke inhalation due to lack of ventilation, snake bites, and assaults. Ultimately, the best way to fight ignorance and fear of menstruation is to be open and to be honest about it. Everyone with a uterus menstruates, and every living human on this earth has the menstrual cycle to thank for their life. Education and enlightenment on a topic is what leads to innovation in almost everything, and periods are no exception to that. Women have always menstruated, and over time and distance, we as humans have always recognized this process is innately tied to life and is therefore innately special. Let us celebrate our shared history, or herstory rather. Let us celebrate our shared herstory and remember the blood of our mothers. Ooh, guys, that was fun. I had so much fun recording this episode. I got a little spicy, got a little sassy. I said the fuck word for the first time on the pod, (laughs) which is something to write down in your history books. Been sipping on my lemon water, getting angry about dumb men and dumb shit from history. Not as angry as some of those TikToks make me, though. My blood is boiling when I watch some of these things, guys. And to think, y'all let these men sleep in the same bed as you? Y'all... Y'all let them be in your house, in your presence? Mm Mm-mm. You are a queen, sister. Do not forget it. Do not forget it. All right. Well, I think that's where I'm going to sign off, guys. I have had so much fun this week. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. I hope you guys will join me next week in the pursuit to know a little bit about everything. Please check out our post on Instagram, rate the podcast, share it with your friends, send me an update on what you thought. And most of all, guys, stay safe out there. Until next time, thanks. (laughs) 